Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. If you would uh, take your Bibles, we come to that time of our service where we look to God and His Word, through His Word, to hear what He might have to say to us this morning. We're in 2 Peter. We're in chapter 1. But if you look over at chapter 3, verse 1, you notice that this is the second letter I am writing to you, Peter says. 2 Peter 3.1. So 1 Peter, 2 Peter. I'm writing this to you to stir you up, your sincere mind by way of reminder, um, because he's reminding them of some things that are very important. They're facing an, false teachers uh, coming in, false disciples, false believers in their midst. And he is reminding them of some truths to help them with their stability in the midst of that. Because when you face opposition, if there's anything you need, it's stability. It's the able, ability to stand firm on what you know. And it may be things you've heard over and over again, but you still need to be reminded. And Peter says that later, later in First Peter chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, as long as we're in this body, I will always be reminding you because we forget. You'll notice down in chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 17, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, this is the end of the letter, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. You don't want to allow unprincipled men, false teachers, false believers, to cause you to fall from your own steadfastness, but instead grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this book is about persecution from within the church, false teachers, false teaching that arises in the midst of the church. First Peter was persecution outside the church. Listen, Satan is always going after the church. He's always going after the church. If he can't get us from the outside, he'll try to do it from the inside. If, he'll try, if he can't influence your thinking and cause you to, to doubt and turn to other things uh, in, out, from the outside, then he will do it from the inside. He wants to get into the mind and the thinking of the church, and so he works from the inside and persecutes us in that way. That's why we must be steadfast. We must know what the Bible says. We must know what truth is. We must be reminded of certain things. Let me uh, show you the passage we're going to look at again this morning. This is part two of last week, basically. But First Peter, Second Peter 1, verses 1 through 5. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord. Notice in that statement that Jesus is God. There's no article there. It goes together. God and Jesus, our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, 
through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers. You, you and me, may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And just to read the very beginning of verse 5. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence. So he's writing this to those who notice who have obtained a saving faith. You've received this faith. It doesn't stop there though. You receive the faith and then you grow in that faith. It doesn't stop with just justification. It goes on into sanctification progressive sanctification. So this is a letter that is telling them what it means to be a Christian and then what it means to live the Christian life. That is what this letter is about. And why does he start the letter this way? And once again, just to remind them of the truths they need to be steadfast. He says the church is made up of redeemed people Understand that. The true church is made up of redeemed people. Just because your name is on the roll of a church does not mean that your name is on the rolls in heaven. Understand that. You can be on the roll of this church or any church or lots of churches, but it doesn't mean your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life in heaven. That's the, the desire is that everyone that attends this church, is redeemed and truly has obtained that saving faith that verse 1 talks about, that, that everyone who attends this church is a true believer, that their name is not just on the rolls of this church, but their name is also on the rolls that are in heaven. That's so important. The church is infiltrated today by many who might talk about Jesus might carry a Bible, might give them their money, and they attend, and even sometimes they get in and become members. And even worse, they become leaders. <laughs> and they do not know Christ. That is a reality. That is what is meant by tares among the wheat in the parable that Jesus told about his kingdom. So I just say that at the beginning here because that's what he's laying out. Make sure. Make sure that you are a saved person. Make sure that you know Jesus Christ. Being a Christian, he goes on to say, you notice in verse 2 of chapter 1, he's almost praying for them when he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. It's almost like he's praying for, that they would grow in their knowledge of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. It means you know Christ and you're increasing in your knowledge of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. You, are, you have true saving faith and that faith is a growing faith. You grow in the context of a relationship. You grow in the context of a relationship with Christ and knowing Him and increasing in that knowledge. The Apostle Paul, turn to Philippians just for a moment. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 
says something that I think is very helpful. Philippians chapter 3. Paul is already a Christian when he writes this. Understand that. Paul is already a believer. But he wants to make it his ambition to know Christ. He knows Christ, but he wants to make it his ambition to know Christ even more. That's the Christian life. Knowing Christ and knowing Christ even more. Notice how he says this. He describes first his conversion. But whatever things were gained to me, and Paul had quite a list. Paul had quite a resume, by the way. He had a very impressive resume. Lots of accomplishments, lots of awards, lots of recognition, lots of accolades came Paul's way as a leader, as one who most likely was in the Sanhedrin, the 70 of Judaism. Paul had quite the resume, but he says here, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, when I put up my assets and my liabilities, I saw that all my assets were liabilities to really knowing Christ. That's what he said. They got in the way. They got in the way. I saw their true value. When you compared it to knowing Christ, it was rubbish. And then he goes on to say, in sanctification, that's in his justification. Now in his sanctification, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Listen, anything that gets in the way of me Knowing Christ better, I consider it rubbish. I don't care how much the world puts value the world puts on it, knowing Christ is more valuable to me. All the success that I was experiencing in Judaism or could even continue to experience in Judaism if I wanted to, I count as rubbish because it just gets in the way of knowing Christ. So it's not just knowing Christ at conversion. It's his ambition even now to know Christ. There's nothing more valuable than knowing him. See that verse 8, verse 9. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. All who have this saving faith, I told you this a few weeks ago, have been given God's righteousness. Your righteousness is not what you do. Your righteousness is who you trust. Whose righteousness are you trusting in? Christ. It's imputed to you when you believe that righteousness, that alien righteousness, that righteousness is outside of you. Then he goes on to say in verse nine, not verse 10, that I may know him. See there? I may know him. I, Paul, you're a Christian. You already know him. No, I really want to continue to know him. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may obtain, verse 11, the resurrection from the dead, then listen to this, verse 12, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Jesus made me his own, Paul's saying. He laid hold of me. He seized me. I was on the road to Damascus. I wasn't thinking about becoming a Christian. I wasn't thinking about Christianity for me. I was thinking about putting Christians to death. That's what I was thinking about. I never considered the possibility of any of this. He took hold of my life. And he took hold of my life for the purpose that I might know him and know him even better in an increasing way. And that the, the character of Christ, as we saw in these verses we're fixing to look at, that the character of Christ might be formed in me. See, I want you to, all I'm trying to say, Christ is the beginning, Christ is the middle, and Christ is the end. It's all about Christ, my friends. It's all about Christ. And then he talks about some resources here in verses 3 and 4 that help us know this and help us know Christ better, that God has provided to us in verses 3 and 4. At, at the moment of salvation, I get this power, this divine power, Christ's divine power. Verse 3 says, I get this divine power where I am granted everything pertaining to life and godliness, relating to the spiritual life, this sanctification. This is how I grow in faith. God did not just say, okay, you're a Christian, now flesh it out yourself. He didn't say that. He says, no, you know me, I want you to grow in your knowledge of me. And I'm going to give you the resources to do that. I told you verse 3 is a very long, complex sentence in the Greek language, like Ephesians 1, very similar. It goes all the way down to verse 11. That's one long sentence, but the verb does not appear until verse 5. See the verb? Be diligent. This is how, this is where the power comes from for you to be diligent, verses 3 and 4. He's going to tell you to be diligent. He doesn't just save you and say, now be diligent. He says, no, I've, you've been saved. I'm going to give you the power, verses 3 and 4, to be diligent, verse 5, so that you can, allot, you can add things to your faith. I, I don't have a part in my justification that's called monergism or monergistic. That means only God does that. I have no part in my justification. He brings me into salvation. He gives me the faith. He does everything to justify me. But sanctification is different. It's synergistic, meaning that I have a part, meaning I work out my salvation. But the exciting thing is I come with batteries. Contrary to most of the Christmas gifts you're going to give this year. You and I come with batteries, an incredible battery pack of divine power to be diligent. So what God commands, God provides the power to do it. That's my point. And you see the first one, we talked about this in last week, I'm not going to go into all this again, but verse, the first one is his, that divine power, seeing that his divine power, this is verse 3, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. I, I'm ready, when I become a Christian, he has packed me with the resources I need for the journey to be diligent. And the reason I can say that is because he's the, the one who grants it is Christ. He's divine, divine. He's God. 
power, his divine power. I said, shared this with you last week, Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is praying for the Ephesian Christians. Uh, his prayer is found in 115 through 19. Let me just read verse 18, or verse 17. He says, I pray that the, the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Folks, this is important. I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. He doesn't pray they'll have power. He knows they've already got it. First Peter 3, 1-3. He knows they've already got it. He's praying they'll realize they got it. They'll realize they've got it. They'll be aware of it. And that's the question I ask you this morning. Are you aware of that? Or do you think you need something else? The temptation is I need something else. Walking in the Spirit and trusting God and reading my Bible... And, and praying and doing those disciplines that God has laid out in Scripture, they're too hard. I want a quick fix sanctification. I want a faster way there. I want some magic formula. And there's a lot of false teachers that are offering magic formulas so that you won't believe you have this divine power. It distracts you from this power. I was a young Christian. I got invited to lots of meetings to hear this new speaker in town, to come and hear how I can have a more whatever Christian life, a deeper knowledge, a higher life, another baptism, second baptism of the Spirit, whatever. The word everything in the Greek is at the beginning of the sentence or near the beginning of the sentence because for emphasis, it's important, the limitless nature of the power of Christ in my life. So it's Christ. It's Christ at the beginning. It's Christ in the middle. It's Christ at the end. Colossians 2.6, you don't have to turn there, but listen to this. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy or empty deception or the traditions of men. Listen, you are complete in Christ. That is the message of the book of Colossians. You are complete in Christ. Go to the next provision we see here in verse 2. Three, verse 3. We know Christ. This is what I just got through saying in Philippians with Paul. And what he's talking about here, see, he says, through the true knowledge of Him. This is how I got the power. Through the true knowledge of Him. Through by which we have access to, um, to Christ, because we had this divine, intimate, we had this intimate uh, relationship with the person of Christ. We know Christ through the true knowledge of Him, epinosis. It's not a head knowledge. We talked about this before. It's a true knowledge. The head's certainly involved, but it's a true, true knowledge from within. This is, this is important. I'm fixing to tell you something really important through this. Stay with me on this passage, on this part of the passage. 
Through this personal relationship, we are able to live out the Christian life. You must have this personal relationship to live out the Christian life. You must be, have more than just data, information. You, you want to grow in maturity, you must have and cultivate a relationship with Christ for that purpose. When I read my Bible, it's not just so I can check off, read my Bible today. No, I read it with the, with the purpose in mind. I want to know Christ. I come to church. I want to know Christ. I, I worship. I want to know Christ. Those things are not an end in themselves. The goal is to, to know Christ more deeply, more intimately. You become more and more like the one you know. But you've been placed into a relationship with Christ so that you may know him and you may continue to know him. And see, what's so amazing about this knowledge of Christ is you had nothing to do with it. See the word who called us? See how it builds here through the knowledge of him who called us? See that word called? That's referring to the effectual call of God to salvation. I didn't put myself in this relationship. He called me into it. And it was an effectual call. It was a summons. It was a conversion call. It was an internal call. It wasn't the call you read about in the Bible, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel call. It wasn't that. It wasn't whosoever will may come call. It wasn't the general call that goes out. It wasn't that external call. We're talking about an internal call. We're talking about something that God does in summoning me to himself and summoning me to this relationship, to this intimate relationship with Christ. It's the call you read in Romans 8.30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. He does not call, justify everybody who hears the general call. He doesn't justify everybody that hears the whosoever will call. It's only those who experience this effectual conversion call. That's the call of God. That's what Paul heard on the Damascus Road. And how did he do this? How did he do this? He did this by his own glory and excellence. This is the means by which he did that. He called you by revealing to you the beauty and the glory of Christ's person. He, you know, when people used to set Christ before me, before I was a Christian, when I was walking in darkness, you know what? No value. I would look at that, no value. I would go to church even. I was a churchgoer. Christ, no value. Oh yeah, I believed he was God. I believed he could save you. I believed he was the son of God. I believed that he was a great teacher. I believed that he was a wise man. I believed all of that. But you put Christ in front of me, he was of no value to me. He was not more valuable to me than the things that Paul considered to be rubbish in his life. He was not more valuable to me than the other pursuits I had going on. But when he called you, you know what he did? He opened your eyes. And this is the difference, folks, because not everybody has experienced this call. He opened your eyes 
to the beauty and the excellence of Christ, something you could not see before. And all of a sudden, he opened your eyes and you saw it. Yes, I want that more than I want my sin. He enabled you to see that. He called you forth to love Christ. Get that. To love Christ. Explain that to me. How one minute I'm indifferent towards him and the next minute I love him. What is going on? How do I explain that? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Hold on to 1 Peter. Or 2 Peter. We haven't been in this book long enough. 2 Peter Hold your hand there, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is, how, this is how conversion is described here for us. In 2 Corinthians 4, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're in a section that is talking about spiritual growth. You see that in 3.18. But when Adam and Eve sin, think about this. When Adam and Eve sin... Originally, before they sinned, they were made to desire what was desirable. Before they sinned and fell, they were made to desire what was desirable. They were made to desire God. That's how they were made. When they sinned, they lost that desire. Our desires are corrupt. We now desire lesser things than God, more than God. Paul's words, rubbish. We love our sin. We love darkness. We hate the light. We love filth. We despise beauty. That is the human condition. What changed? What changed for Paul? What changed for you? What changed for me as a Christian? To be able to say the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In sin, I lost the desire, but now God has somehow given me a desire for it. Look at 2 Corinthians 4, 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. Paul says, the, one reason I, the only reason I can preach is because he saved me. I don't lose heart in preaching it. He says, because God has been merciful to me, I know God will be merciful to others. Verse 2. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. I'll tell you what, even though it's getting hard for people to listen to the message, Paul says, I'm not going to change the word. I'm not going to adulterate the word of God to get an effect. I'm not going to manipulate people to get the effect I want. That's what he's saying there. Even when it's discouraging, I refuse to practice cunningness. I refuse to tamper with the Word of God. I commit myself to the truth. You know, a lot of preachers today are not committed to that, what Paul's saying there. They'll make the Word say whatever they need for it to say, to draw a crowd, to be popular, to be liked. That's a temptation, a hard, strong temptation. Make the message easy. Take repentance and sin and don't talk about those things because they, they offend people. No, he says, I'm not going to go after some, divide, some effect. 
by adulterating the word of God and tampering with the word of God. I commit myself to the truth. I want to be known by the people, but to their conscience that I'm one who is committed to the truth. Verse three, and if our God, now listen to this. This is important. And if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. This is my testimony. I was veiled. The gospel at one time was veiled to me. It is veiled to those who are perishing. In verse 4, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You see that? Satan does not want you to see the beauty of Christ. Satan does not want the unbeliever to see the value of Christ. He wants to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel because the gospel light is the only thing that can shatter the darkness. That's what the devil does. He does not want you to see, a person to see God's glory in Christ. He does not want you to see that that's God in human flesh. He does not want you to see those things. And so it's been blinded to the unbelievers. Verse five, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We don't want our preaching to be about us. We want to preach about Christ because you know something? The only thing that is going to remove the veil from anybody's eyes is the gospel. You just keep preaching the gospel. For God who said, notice, let light shine out of darkness is the one, notice, notice, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. How do you go from, from, how do you go from uh, uh, not seeing to seeing? Uh, how do you go from not loving Christ to loving Christ? How do you go from considering the things of this world more valuable than Christ to now saying he's valuable? How do I go from that? How do, how do I go from holding on to everything and being willing to leave everything to follow him? It's because he brought light into your dark soul. There it is, verse 6. He shined the light of truth into your heart. That's what he did. And that's why in 2 Peter, he says it's through the beauty, the majesty, and the glory of Christ. That's how he called me. He made Christ so beautiful to me. He made the gospel so attractive to me, that foolish gospel. He made it so attractive to me. Foolishness to the world, but not to me at that moment. That's the only way I can explain it, and that's the only way you can explain it. How you're sitting here this morning if you're a Christian, the only way you can explain it is God did that to you. You aren't just so much smarter than everybody else. And, oh, I got this figured out, and I got the Trinity down, and all that, da-da-da-da-da. Excellent academic. No. If that's all it is to you, some academic exercise, and you're missing the point, to have this intimate relationship with Christ where he is so valuable, and you see his beauty, and you want him more, and you forsake everything to follow him, and you're willing to put, get rid of all the idols in your heart, and you're willing to walk with him, and you're willing to get up each day and call out to him and pray to him and come to church on, and worship with other Man, what is with you? Unless God has done something in you. 
That's his point. He, he came into your dark soul, my dark soul, and he shined the light. And that's how I came into an intimate knowledge of Christ. God removed the veil. I can't remove the veil. I can't take the veil off. He did that. And when you saw the beauty and the glory of Christ with the eyes of faith, you came. You will come <laughs> because it's an effectual call. Christ shone, and from that moment on, that's your greatest desire, is to grow in his likeness. When you see him, you come to him. Everyone who refuses Jesus, they have never seen this. They have never seen what I'm talking about. Everybody who refuses Jesus has never seen this. This is a work of God. They've been told about it, and they may understand it intellectually, but they have never had God shine in their heart like that verse is talking about, to where Christ becomes so valuable and excellent. Go to John 1. John chapter 1, verse 9. John 1, 9. Not 1 John now, this is John. The Gospel of John 1, 9. There was the true light which which coming into the world enlightens every man. Now, that's not universalism. That just means giving information. That just means make, giving, letting men see, hear the truth, know the truth and, and intellectually, but this is not talking about salvation here. And I say that because you can see in the next verses, but it gives men enough information to hold them accountable through creation and conscience. He enlightens every man. Verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. See that? He came into the world. He's the light. He came into the world and the, he's the creator of the world and then the people are in the presence of the creator and they reject him and don't know him and those who are his own don't know him. They did not receive him. Then verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. That's just another way of saying faith. Those who had faith. Well, how do I explain faith? Where did that come from? Where did that come from? Look at verse 13. One minute you have it, and the next minute... You don't, one minute you don't have it, the next minute you do. Who were born of God? See that? That's where it comes from. You're born of God. That's regeneration, friends. That's God doing a work in you. That's, that's that light shining in your heart. And you see him now not as just a good teacher out there. You don't see him as just somebody out there claim, making claims. You see him for who he is. See, there he goes, they were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. They weren't, they didn't, they didn't, they weren't Christians because they were raised in a Christian family. I bet I could take a show of hands here this morning. Some of you were raised in Christian families, and some of you were not, and yet you came to Christ. Because this has nothing to do with the family you were born into. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not your works. It's not what you do that brought about this faith. It's not your will. 
It's, it's not your deeds, your flesh, it's not your choice in the matter at all. And every genuine child of God knows his deeds did not get him into the kingdom of God. He knows. The only way to explain it is you're born of God. God's choice, God's work. Look at verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And notice, we saw his glory. Glory is the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See that? Some saw that, some did not. What made them see that and others did not? We are born of God. It's John 1.14. And so now that you have been summoned, Peter says, you have been summoned, you possess everything you will need for life and godliness. He summons you to live a life that's pleasing to him. He's to live a life of godliness and he's given you the resources to do that. Go back to 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.4 For by these, by his glory and excellence, we follow from the previous verse, that he has drawn us by his own glory and excellence. Notice by making his son known to us, by these, that's what these is all about there, for by these, he has also granted to us something else, his precious and magnificent promises, so that we might become partakers of the divine nature. That's how Christ, and Doug said it so well this morning, that's how Christ's character is formed in you, by the word of God, by the word of God. The inspired word of God, the God-breathed book that we study, study every Sunday, God's words, that book he has granted to you. It is sufficient for you. You know, there's a time I didn't care for the Bible. There was a time when it had no value to me. There was a time when I did not see its importance. I didn't like, like reading it because I felt condemned by it. I didn't understand it. There was a time when I just... Take it or leave it. But something happened. I got to know the author. I got to know the author, and all of a sudden the book became very valuable to me. If you know the author, the book is significant in your life. You value what it says. It's not some closed, dead-end book to you. It's not boring to you. I mean, I can make it boring, no doubt about it. Any teacher can make it boring. That's not the, teach, that's not the book's fault. That's the teacher's fault. But the book, it's the word of life. And we value what it says. The promises he makes are yours. These aren't promises for unbelievers. These are promises for believers. You came to know Christ in truth. And this just cultivates that intimate relationship that we're talking about because your spiritual growth takes place in the context of an intimate relationship with Christ. If you feel like your Christian life is not growing, you feel like, you're, one, you're a Christian, two, you believe it's not growing, you need to check your intimacy with Christ. Go back there. And you need to get into his word and meditate on his word 
and fall in love with your first love again. Go back to the former things. Paul, Peter, John says in the book of Revelation, go back to the former things. Reading your Bible, praying, fellowshipping with other believers. So there's lots of promises that he's given us. What are those promises? Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Oh, listen to this. How sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Todd Murray talks about a, a, a dad who put honey on the cover of his Bible and told his kids to lick it off. Now you might think, yeah. But what an object lesson. What an object lesson. Now kids won't think of that the same way you as an adult would think of it. You think of all the 15 million germs floating around the world. They're just thinking of, wow, yeah. Honey. I thought that was, I thought, hmm. But that's pretty good. (laughs) Taught a point. The end of the book of Judges, you see the cycle of sin for deliverance. You, go, you have a cycle of sin, then they move into a deliverance, then back into sin again. And the book just goes on and on. Everybody just did what was right in their own eyes. And that's how so many people want to live their Christian life, what is right in their own eyes. And God has instructed us how to do this. I have everything I need. This book is sufficient. I don't need to go anyplace else to find out how to live the Christian life. In fact, I can't even do... Everything it says in here, why in the world am I going to go somewhere else and find out some more information? I mean, this is enough for a lifetime and more. And we're tempted to look other places. I know that. Every time a book comes in the Christian bookstore, I mean, you've got to evaluate it. And you, know, you get the point. I've said that too many times. You've got the point. He promises forgiveness. That's a big one. Colossians 1, 13. You don't have to turn there. But for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Hey, all your sins are forgiven. That's a promise. You may not always believe that, but it's true. God's son in Christ, your sins are forgiven. If you don't have the Son, your sins are not forgiven. You will die in your sins, and you will experience the wrath of God. But for a believer, your sins are forgiven. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's promised us truth. I love this one. He's promised us truth in John 8, 31. Jesus said, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. It will make you free from the pursuit of trying to find the right way is one of those freedom things, points he's making. It will set you free from the bondage of your sin. He gives you the first warning here. They're going to be false believers because there are going to be some people who say they believe, but they don't continue. When people tell me, well, I used to be a Christian. I used to believe that. I don't believe that anymore. I say to them, you never were a Christian. You never were. I don't care what your profession was. I don't care how many tears you shed. I don't care how many times you got baptized. I don't care what you did. If you tell me that you abandoned the faith, I say to you, you were never a Christian. You were not born of God because you can't. I may, my Christian life may not always look pretty or biblical, but deep down, I know. I know him. And there's no abandoning that. I may not always live the way I want to live. 
But I, you, if you abandon him, listen, you're apostate, listen, you are like those teachers of, sec, of chapter 2. You never knew him. You just never knew him. First John chapter 2, they went out from us because they never were of us. Of, of, of us. And he's given you the Holy Spirit. That's another promise. I have the Holy Spirit. I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. My body, he lives in me. Christ in you. It's a tremendous promise, a tremendous resource. It's not just a data book for us to argue doctrine over with people. It's something for us to be equipped with so that we can resist error. So that you may become, notice in verse 4, that you may become partakers of the divine nature. That word uh, partaker is a word of fellowship. It's a word of uh, that I may have something in common with God. That's the idea. His divine nature. That I would be like God. That's the goal. That is the goal of your Christian life, is to become more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. It's to become more and more like God. It's to be an imitator of God. Ephesians 5.1. He indwells in us. In that sense, we're partakers for sure. He indwells in us. The Holy Spirit purposes to make us holy. It's given to you so that people can look at you and say, you're just like your God. It's kind of like you, you have his nature. It's kind of like uh, John 1.12, I read a while ago, become children of God. A, a, a child resembles their parents. And we've been given the right to be children of God so that we can resemble God. Same idea. Have things in common with God, his nature, his attributes. It's not, not what some people have said, oh, it's you become a God. No, you don't become a God. Some false teachers say that. <laughs> no. Or the Hindus say you get lost in the Godhead. It's not it either. There's God and there's us, okay? There's God and there's us. And if you're not feeding on the Scripture, if you're not feeding on the promises, you're not going to be conformed to His image. Because your ability to partake of the divine nature never happens apart from the Bible. It just doesn't. It doesn't. You just can't live your Christian life apart from the Bible. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. That's Psalm 119, 9 and 11. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. John 15, 3, it's the word that prunes you. We're pruned. The word prunes you. The branches are pruned so they'll be more fruitful. It's the word that's doing that. It's cleaning you. It's, 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 it's washing you. At the end of the verse, 2 Peter 1, 4, still there having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He sets us free by letting us escape corruption. Now, this is important. This, this is an important term. Let me see if I can figure out how to say this in three minutes. Um, because there's, there's defilements of the world there's the pollution of the world. And I try to escape those things, and so do you. But you know what? I even think an unbeliever can do that. 
I think an unbeliever can escape the defilement. I just want to be a moral person. I want to hang around these moral people. And I want to just, I just want to add moral values to my life. So I'm going to stay away from certain pollutions in the world, certain defilements in the world. But this is corruption. This is, this is different. This talks about my nature. This talks about what I'm really like. This talks about escaping that. See, I want to desire the things that God desires. It's not just escaping pollution. Look at 2 Peter. Well, don't look there yet. Let me say a couple of words. In chapter 3, I'm going to say this really quick. In chapter 2, he's going to talk about these false teachers. He's going to talk about their corruption. He's going to talk about what they're like on the inside and how they can come into your midst and they can appear to be okay. They can appear to be right on. But the problem is they still have this corruption inside of them that you don't see. They still have this, their, their nature that you don't see. And he uses this term in 22 of 2 Peter chapter 2. It happened to them according to the true proverb. Notice, a dog returns to its own vomit. A sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. You see what he's saying? You can dress up a dog. You can call the dog your child if you want to. You can put him in one of the dog shows I saw on TV on Thanksgiving Day. You can do all of that with your dog. But let your dog go out in the front yard and lose his lunch and see what he does with his lunch. But he just lo- I, don't want to get, I don't want to get crazy here with this illustration. But the point is, he's still a dog. That's the point. The corruption doesn't leave. The nature doesn't leave. He's still a dog. The sow, the pig, the same way. You can put a bow in your pig's head. You can let your pig come in the house and do all those things you do with a pet. But let it rain outside. Let it get muddy outside. And watch what he does. He acts like a pig. Because that's his nature. I need something to get rid of my nature. That's my problem. And that's what he's saying about these false teachers. Their nature will eventually come to light. See, he's allowed me to escape my corruption. Now, I'm not saying I don't fall back into it sometimes. I sure do. But I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want that nature anymore. Your dog's not going to say that. He's going to say, take this dumb bow out of my hair and let me just be a dog. But I don't want to. He allowed me to escape that corruption that is in the world. We've seen the beauty of Christ. And Christ only appeals to those whom God has called and given this new nature. <laughs> Listen, if you don't desire the things of God, if you find this book extremely boring and a waste of time, you need your nature changed. That's your problem. And only God can do that. I can't do that. Your wife or your husband can't do that. Only Christ can do that. It's 1201. Let's go. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for truth. Thank you for these tremendous resources you've given us to be diligent that we can go and be diligent. Thank you, Father. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.